God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. I was so blessed by the, uh, the songs that we sang this morning. I, I don't know if someone was looking at our passage, but felt like it anyway. Uh, as we begin this series in 2 Corinthians, uh, we see that God indeed is an ever-present help in trouble. Let's pray together one more time, please. Yes, Lord God, you are our fortress, our strength, our refuge, and we, we do delight in you, we rest in you, we throw ourselves into your arms day by day. At least that's where we want to be, instead of trying to sh shoulder our own burdens and troubles ourselves. We would choose, Lord God, to look to you, the living God, our strength and our Redeemer. We thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We commit this time to you. Ask that you would accomplish in each one of our hearts what you want to do this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory and honor. Amen. Yeah, it's a delight to uh, begin this series in 2 Corinthians. And um, I do not really have a PowerPoint presentation, I have, despite what you see up there. I have a few slides. It's because I cannot multitask. I've discovered that. I can't, can't do this and, and that at the same time. You'd think that wouldn't be too hard, but uh, it is for me. So um, what I do have is, a, is a, a few pictures, basically, just to give us a feel what we're talking about. Where is Corinth? Uh, who were the Corinthians as we enter this uh, second letter to the Corinthians? which we might find out, so it's actually third or fourth, or who knows. But uh, anyway, there's the there's, uh, Mediterranean Sea kind of smack in the center there. And getting into the southern part of Greece, you see that blob there in the center with this little connecting piece of land, and that connecting piece right there is the city of Corinth on the, on the west side of that very narrow strip. That narrow strip was about uh, 6.3 kilometers. Um, today, I'm getting ahead of myself, but let me skip ahead. Today, they've, they've got this canal through that uh, strait of, or canal of Corinth. Uh, but in the days when Paul was writing, there was no canal, and they would actually carry ships across that 6.3 kilometers. Um, I'm not talking canoes and a long portage. That would be a long portage for me. Um, but uh, we're talking about 20-ton ships because it was so dangerous to go around. Um, the sailors would have to write their wills before they would take that sea voyage around. So it was worth it for them to climb that 90-meter hill and traverse that uh, that six kilometers. Corinth was the capital of the region of Achaia. Let me see if I can back up now. Um, which is that, that uh, peninsula part, that lower section there. At the time of Paul's visit to Corinth, there were probably 200,000 people in that city, which when you think about ancient cities, that's, that's, that's quite large. And, and it, was, it was an important commercial, commercial center. Um, of course, being a, 
a Greek city, a Roman city. They had a lot of idolatry. They had temples to Poseidon, to Apollo, to Aphrodite, Hermes, and more. And all that was all the wickedness that went along and was associated with uh, the temple worship in those days to these Greek gods and goddesses. So that's a little bit of the backdrop to uh, the city that we're dealing with. And I'd like to um, just read briefly uh, the passage in Acts that speaks of, of Paul um, going to Corinth. <clears throat> we'll read these Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. Um, it says, after this, Paul, this is Paul's second missionary journey. It says, after... <clears throat> After leaving, he was leaving Athens, I believe. After, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. We can stop there. So that was Paul's first visit to Corinth, staying, as, you, as we just heard, a year and a half, which was quite a long time for Paul to stay in any one place. I know he stayed, as far as we know, the longest in Ephesus was three years, but he, he spent a full year and a half in Corinth. And of course, we uh, are many of us familiar with 1 Corinthians, which tells us of some of the troubles in Corinth. Uh, there were divisions, there were quarrels, there, were, there was spiritual immaturity. He addresses, he says, I can't address you as mature. I have to address you as infants uh, and, and give you milk, not solid food. There were babes in Christ. There was envy and strife and pride and immorality. Uh, in fact, we can read in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 9 through 11, he says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
so that's the that was the background that many of these these people came out of they they were living in corinth they were constantly surrounded by this influence and as as we read paul's words in uh first corinthians 15 he says uh, do not be deceived bad company ruins good morals paul wrote to the corinthians at least twice prior to this um we know we have the letter of first corinthians and then there's another letter that was referred to in first corinthians 5 9 and possibly there was a fourth letter um a third making second corinthians the fourth um that's referred to in second corinthians 7 8 as the severe letter which some see some would say that was the letter of first corinthians and others would say no that was a, a separate letter just by the tone that paul paul used in expressing his his grief in writing that letter and and if it was an inspired letter of god would he have had that that concern or whatever so anyway debate on that and i'll let the guy who's got second corinthians 7 8 address that it's my way out <laughs> um and it's as we look at Second Corinthians, it's it's important to realize that Paul was the author of this book. Now that's quite obvious; he says it right there in front. But um, it's not like the book of Hebrews, for example. We don't know who wrote it, and we can read the book of Hebrews, and it and it makes no difference that we don't know who wrote it. Second Corinthians is not that way. It's very important that we know that it was Paul, um, because much of it is dealing with his. Uh, explanation of his ministry and his defense of his ministry and especially his position as as an apostle of god in in opposition to the false apostles uh, whom he, he writes about and deals with uh, in this book as well who was paul paul we know was a devout jew he was a pharisee which was a religious sect that was strong on the torah strong on the oral traditions and I, I recently read was a forerunner to what we would call rabbinic judaism today uh, that's still alive and well basically they were they they were kind of the evolution of the of the pharisees um paul was likely in his 20s when our lord jesus was crucified and he would have been in his either late 20s or early 30s when Stephen was martyred. Stephen was martyred, and he was there um, giving consent to his death, casting his vote uh, against Stephen. In Acts 26, we get a little description of of Paul's calling. Let's read a passage there. Acts 26, verses 12 through 18. <clears throat> Uh, yes, he says, on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus, one of his journeys to persecute Christians. I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant 
and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So that's a little, his own description of, of his conversion to Christ. Um, reading further back in Acts chapter 9, his, <clears throat> at, at the, <clears throat> the time of his conversion, what did Jesus say to Ananias? I'd like to just read a couple of verses when Ananias was basically complaining about being sent to, to Saul, who was a persecutor of the church. The Lord says to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And one last passage, the feel for who this guy Paul is. In Galatians chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the tra traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. And I'll stop there. But you get the idea. Um, if he had been in some other religions today, we would know him as a terrorist. We would know him as a car bomber or a whatever, right? That's Paul. He, he had zeal. He was persecuting the church. He thought he was doing God's service. Um, and then the Lord appears to him and reveals who he really was. Paul even called himself a blasphemer. And that was not based on his blaspheming Jehovah as his... Jewish God as the only true God, but in the things that he had to say about Jesus Christ before his conversion. Okay, let's get into this passage now in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That's a little bit of the background, and we shall move forward here. <clears throat> Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, an apostle, so he identifies himself as an apostle. This word means a, a sent one, a messenger. Jesus is the one who sent him. We read it's by the will of God. God had decided beforehand, he said, he set me apart from my mother's womb. God had decided that Paul was going to be his messenger and that he would take the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul talks about himself as the least of the apostles. 
who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. He writes that in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. So that's Paul. He, he responded to the revelation of Jesus Christ. He responded with as much zeal as he had, more even. The zeal that he persecuted the church, now he's zealous in his efforts to spread the message of Christ. And he says that I worked harder than all the other apostles, even though I was the last one coming to the game and didn't deserve any of it. And that's, that's right, he didn't, neither do you and I. It's totally by grace, which we'll look at in just a moment. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Who was Timothy? I'm going to read just a, just a few verses as well about Timothy in Acts chapter 16. This is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. The second missionary journey is when, um, when the uh, church in Corinth was established. Uh, you can see Saul traveled up and went over, and you can see there on the screen, hopefully you can see Lystra and Derby and Iconium. Well, we read about Timothy there. So Paul came to Derby in Acts chapter 16, verse one, he came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So the folks spoke well of him. The believers spoke well of, of this young man. He was a young man. Some think he might have been a teenager, maybe possibly early 20s, but he was a young man. And um, he had clearly demonstrated in his life that he wanted to be a follower of Jesus Christ, not just a half-hearted disciple, but a full-hearted disciple. And that's a, just a beautiful thing it was so sincere and so obvious that the people, the believers there, they spoke well of Timothy to Paul to the extent that Paul decided, hey, I'd like to take this young man along with me on my journey. And we, we see then all that Timothy's involved in, um, including this planting of the church in Corinth. Uh, <clears throat> And we see later on in, uh, in, first, in the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul, Timothy was sent back to Corinth by Paul. He says, for this reason I have sent you, Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, and he will, will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Timothy is mentioned in 10 New Testament books in addition to the two that were written specifically to him, First and Second Timothy. And we read in Philippians 2, 19, just thinking about the character of Timothy, 
Timothy, uh, Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. That was the character of Timothy. Would you like to have a man of God say that of you? I have no one else like him. Because he, can, he will show a genuine concern for your welfare. And everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know what, Timothy? And there's a guy who really looks out for the interests of others. What a, what a fabulous testimony. We read in, in 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, uh, Paul writing to Timothy, and he says, I am reminded of your, your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. So he had a godly heritage, and I, I think that we, as mom, moms and dads, as, as grandmas and grandpas, we also should look at that and say, yes, we want to, obviously, we want to instill our faith in Christ into our children. We want to train them up in the ways of the Lord and encourage them in the ways of the Lord. And I think it's neat, too, that, you know, you, you have to do a little imagination, but Here's his mother and his grandmother. When he's leaving to go off in this voyage with this fellow that they don't probably know that well, but they know he's a man of God. They know he's out spreading the message of God. And so they're on board to let their son, their grandson take off. I just think about my own missionary career and um, I praise the Lord. Again, I've shared this here before. I praise the Lord for parents who were, didn't hold back, didn't say, well, we'd like you to stay here where you know, we can have you and enjoy, enjoy the grandkids and all that kind of thing. No, they didn't hold back. They, I went to the mission field with my parents' blessing. And that's uh, an admonition to us. Let's don't hold back our children from serving the Lord anywhere that the Lord leads them. Let's bless them in that. Let's encourage them in that and send them out with our blessing. As a church, let's be looking for young men like Timothy, young women who love God with abandon whom we can send out into the fields of this world, the fields that are white to harvest. And I, I like the model that is here, that is the model of this young person going with uh, an experienced missionary and learning it on the job in the context in real life. I, I love that model and I think it's a model that we, we should be following as well. And uh, we, we are. We've, we've seen some of this already here and I think uh, hopefully in the weeks and months to come we'll see more of that. More, more on that another time. All right. To the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia. This uh, 
looking at my time here, I don't want to get too bogged down. Um, this word ecclesia is, is an assembly, a group assembled and uh, called out to a meeting. So it's a, it is an assembly, right? Today we, we call it an assembly. Uh, you French speakers will recognize this, uh, the word église. Well, that comes from ecclesia. Unfortunately, in English, we got the word church, which comes from another uh, Greek word, <clears throat> which was something to the effect of kuriakon, uh, 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 which was from the Greek word kurios, Lord. So it's basically saying the Lord's, but typically in history and, and the context at the time, it wasn't used to people. It was used more of temples or of holy places. So I think we kind of got ripped off in English on that one. Um, <clears throat> and we... I don't know, in our circle, sometimes we, we shy away from the word church, and, and maybe it's for that reason. It, it, it really <laughs> came from the Greek word that looked at the building, not the people. The church is the people, right? You are the church, not this place. This is a building. Sometimes people call it a chapel. Sometimes people call it a church building. Sometimes people call it a hall. Um, but you are the church. Chapels don't do anything. The chapel doesn't support any missionaries. The church supports missionaries. The assembly supports missionaries. Okay, so just a little plug on that. Maybe we could, we could say church for both the building and, and the people because that's what our culture does nowadays. I think there would be some scriptural uh, merit to that. Um, so it could either be perfectly right or perfectly wrong, depending on which Greek word you're looking at there. So. That's my little aside for the day. I didn't have enough controversial stuff to talk about this morning, so there we go. That was my, my best shot at it there. I hope, hope you enjoy that. All right. To, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia. What is this word saints? This word saints means holy. It's the same word for holy spirit. It's the same word for God who says, be holy as I am holy. That's the same word. So he's saying to the holy ones in all of Achaia. And just, again, that, uh, that whole peninsula there is Achaia, and marked there as Achaia. And um, <clears throat> so in any context, I was just looking at a map last night. I was, I was thinking, OK, you got that little peninsula of Achaia down there. It doesn't look like a peninsula to me, so I'm having a hard time saying that, but that little blob of land down there, Achaia, you go from the middle of that um, and you head to Corinth. It's about 100 kilometers. Or you go from Sparta, which was also on that, and go to Corinth, about 150 kilometers. And these are days where you're traveling that. So you're doing that maybe three or four, or however many days you're doing it. When you get to Corinth, you're not just doing your one hour business and turning around and hitting the trail back home. You're staying for a while, okay? And it was a hub for the area. And just like in any area, you've got hubs. And typically cities become hubs because the things that you need are there in the cities. And so, <clears throat> though we don't read of Paul traveling out of Corinth to other villages or cities in Achaia, maybe he did. At any rate, he had influence into all Achaia based on people who were coming to see him, meeting him as he was preaching the gospel in Corinth. 
So all of Achaia is being, is being touched with the gospel. And therefore, he addresses them as well in this letter with all the saints throughout Achaia, all the holy ones. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor toward us. And this isn't something that Paul can impart to them, but it comes from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in a sense, he's, he's using it both as a salutation, but it's also a desire and a prayer and a blessing to these folks in Corinth. His desire that the Corinthians, and by extension, you and I, would fully experience God's favor and that they would abide in that. That would be their medium for life, that they would experience God's peace that comes from knowing God. I, I think, I would assume that most of us are believers, but God's grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ we would have no fellowship with God. We would have no peace with God. Peace is possible through the gospel. And the gospel comes to us based on God's grace, his favor, looking on us in mercy and pity and sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. And he seeks relationship with us. And as believers, we continue to live in grace, to live in his favor, to live, as I like to think of it, as under the smile of God. God is smiling at you this morning. He loves you. He loves you so much. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. We stop there. Uh, some versions say, blessed, some are praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This verse, blessed, this word rather, is, a, is from the same root as the word eulogy, which we think of as speaking well of someone. And as we praise God, we speak of his goodness, of his love, of his grace, of his majesty. So we bless the Lord God. We praise him. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting in John 20, as Jesus has already come back from the grave and he says to Mary, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I think it maybe sometimes strikes us as odd that, that, that Jesus would call God his God, but in his earthly life, who else would he call his God? We think about Jesus in eternity past, sharing in the glory with his Father, the glory that I had with you before the world began. And we see less distinction, perhaps, in the Trinity, at the, in, our own, in my own mind, anyway, at that time. But there was distinction. There's the Father and the Son and the Spirit, perfectly unified. But the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, nor the Spirit. But the fact that he calls him my Father, 
we see also that intimacy and that he shared that essence with the Father as the divine second person of the Trinity. He calls, he says, the, Paul says, the Father of compassion and the, ga- the God of all comfort. <clears throat> Maybe your version says the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. I was encouraged this morning in, in thinking about some of that, uh, those aspects in, in, in the psalm that was read and, and reread, uh, Psalm 46. And I was also thinking about Psalm 103. I'll just read a portion of that psalm to you. Just thinking about Paul's mindset on this word mercy and, and, and thinking about that compassion of God. He said, the Lord is, Psalm, the psalmist says in 103 verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, he remembers that we are dust. He's the God of all mercies. He's the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. This word comfort <clears throat> is paraclesis. You will recognize the word paraclete being spoken of the Holy Spirit as our comforter. And it's one who comes alongside to help. That's the Holy Spirit. That's who the Holy Spirit is to us. One who comes alongside to help us, to encourage us, to strengthen us and sustain us and comfort us. And that we, we, we know the word comforter that you might have on your bed. That's not what we're talking about here. Because it's not always going to look plus. It's not going to be in that context. It's, as Paul goes on to say, it's in this context of troubles. He comforts us in our troubles. So he's, he's encouraging and strengthening and sustaining us in our troubles. So Paul is praising and blessing God as compassionate and merciful and a comforting God. And it's not theoretical for him at all. He is living it. Even as he's writing this epistle, he is living this out. Because he's, he goes on to say, who, verse 4, he comforts us in all our troubles, all our afflictions. This word is a word that means oppressing. He is being hard-pressed, pressed together. It can be emotional, anguish, burdens. It can be physical. Pressing, hard, difficult. And Paul said that he comforts us in all our troubles. So that, he goes on to say, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So one reason for suffering affliction is to make us able comforters for others. And he says he comforts us in any, or some translations render it every, trouble. It's not just persecution. That's, that's largely what Paul was experiencing here, is persecution. And he's writing out of that context, and he's writing into that context as well. But it, 
is clear here that he comforts us in any trouble, any fear, any pain that might be physical pain, that might be emotional pain, that might be mental anguish that you're having, any loss, any opposition, any failure. You know, it's especially nice when we, uh, when we know someone who's gone through the same type of suffering that we're going through. Um, someone who's going through cancer treatments can often looks for someone else who's gone through cancer treatments. They want to get that relation. That person can understand so much more intimately of what they're going through. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing in the body that we can help and bless each other that way. But Paul says he comforts us in all, all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So I don't think it's limited to that. It doesn't mean that because you are not a cancer survivor that you can't bless someone who is going through chemotherapy. It doesn't mean that at all. We are being equipped by God in any troubles that we have to bless and help others who are going through any struggles. That might be something you say to encourage their heart. It might be some, a note that you write to encourage someone, to bless them, to strengthen them. It might be a physical help that you render. It might be a gift that you give. It might be praying with that person, praying for that person. It might be hugging them might be crying with them. This is the body. And we aren't designed to suffer alone. We need each other. And part of the purpose of the body is just that. We need to be doing life together. We need to have intimacy with each other. I know you and you know me. I know what you're struggling with. And I can pray for you and help you. And you know what I'm struggling with. You can pray for me and help me. Verse 5, for we, just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, comforted it is for your comfort which produces in, your, in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. The sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives. That's what Jesus told us would happen in this world. You will have troubles. Take heart, I have overcome the world. He said in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And Paul writes in First Colossians 1, 24, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Did Paul have some ability to add to the atoning work of Christ? No, he's spreading that message, and he's taking the heat that the enemy of the gospel put on the Lord Jesus, and carried that on into disciples of Christ. But through Christ, our comfort overflows. And I'm thinking about Hebrews, fixing our eyes on him who endured so that we won't grow weary and lose heart. 
and having the same mind as that of Christ Jesus, who made himself nothing. Reading verse 7, and our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Paul was totally confident of that reality, that just as he experiences God's comfort in his troubles, the Corinthians would too, and you will too. I can say that with perfect confidence. God will not fail you. He will comfort you in any and every trouble. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, our, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. God let them, Paul and his companions, go through this horrible trial. He doesn't spell it out here. Where he came to the end of himself. He, he looked at the situation. He, there is no way out of this. We're all going to die. And yet God delivered him. God was with him, comforting him in the midst of that trial. Could he have died? Sure he could have died. Would we then say God was unfaithful? No, we wouldn't say God was unfaithful. God was with him in the trouble, comforting him, sustaining him, strengthening him for whatever was to come. And in the end, he was delivered. Paul says, as you help us, <clears throat> by your prayers. He will continue to deliver us, in the verse 10, as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. The Corinthians were able to help with their prayers, help Paul in his troubles by praying for him. And we also have that same privilege as we live life together, as we know each other, and know our struggles, we have the blessed privilege of praying for one another. And as we pray for one another and God answers those prayers, we as a body and as individuals in the body thank the Lord and praise him. And that's the end of verse 11. That many will give thanks on behalf of the gracious favor granted to us in answer to the prayers of many. With that, I close and say that in uh, just 13 minutes now, sorry, I'm over time. Uh, we have this opportunity as well as a body to have a prayer time. I appreciate the elders organizing this, but this is a time for us to pray for one another. And we trust that in God's goodness and his love and mercy and faithfulness, he will answer many of these prayers, and then we can praise him together. Lord, we thank you. We bless your name. Be glorified, Lord God. And even as we come to you with our prayers shortly, we look forward to the answer to those prayers and the opportunity again to praise you and thank you for your kindness, your compassion.
support us. And we give you all the thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen.